Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to season four of Nothing Is Real. We've got a, a, a couple of things lined up for this season, don't we, Stephen? One or two. One or two. And, uh, you know, we're going to continue with uh, what seasons two and three brought us, which is a couple of deep dives where we kind of go a little bit longer than anyone thought possible on certain topics. Yes. Mostly George <laughs> topics. We're just going to do 10 episodes on George Harrison albums. Yeah. We figure there's a couple of things about all things must pass that were left unsaid. Uh, and of course, the big five parter on Give My Regards to Broad Street. But no, we plan on doing uh, more and of the same. And beyond, uh, basically. And beyond. And beyond, with a few extra bits and pieces out there. So thank you for listening to everything so far, and let's get stuck in. Welcome to Nothing Is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. Everybody thinks they know the Beatles, but how much do we really know? My name's Jason Carty. My name's Stephen Cockcroft. And we're live on tape from Dublin and Belfast. On Sunday, February the 9th, 1964, the Beatles took to the stage of the Studio 50 building on Broadway and West 54th Street in Manhattan as the headline bill-topping guest stars of that week's edition of The Ed Sullivan Show. And it was the culmination of an unimaginable series of events for a band that only played their last show at the Cavern about six months earlier. The Beatles were number one in the US charts that night with I Wanna Hold Your Hand. But if that song was the fuse, then their Ed Sullivan appearance was the full explosion, an all-encompassing pop culture moment. And the legend of that performance on that night has grown over the years in no part cultivated by the Beatles themselves. But what's the truth? What's the legend? How did it all come to pass? And how come no one ever talks about all their other Ed Sullivan appearances, especially the, the one 18 months later in August 1965? There is a lot to talk about here, isn't there? There is a lot to talk about, and uh, I know you're looking forward to this being a, a connoisseur of American talk shows and talent shows and variety programs, and really all right, <laughs> all right, man from the fifties. I have a, I have an uh, I have an unusual along with the the the, the Beatles reservoir of uh, of arcade facts. Yes, American television and late night television is is also a, 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 a special subject. Yeah, but it's it's. Um, you know, I do wonder, you know, when, when, when we're thinking about, you know, talking about Ed Sullivan in the year that we're doing this, 2021, do we think of Ed Sullivan in 2021 because of the Beatles? Maybe that's a European, you know, this side of the Atlantic perspective, but, you know. I, I, I think so. I mean, I, I don't think Ed Sullivan would have been known yeah. uh, in, in England, in the UK, uh, Europe. Uh, you know, his show ran in the 60s, early 70s. I don't recall uh, his name coming up other than in the context of, of the Beatles appearing. Yeah, and it's, you know, the uh, 
you know, I know he was a cultural institution, as you say, in the US. So there's a generation of people who grew up with him. But for the people who didn't grow up with him and the people who weren't living in the US, I think nowadays you mention Ed Sullivan and you think of the Beatles, you know, and that's been something that's been celebrated. And we'll talk about the celebrations of that performance a little bit later on. Uh, and it's also, you know, there was a handful of shows at the time that were being pulled from North America onto um, British screens. There was uh, television started in Ireland in 1962, but obviously it had been running on the BBC for, for a long, long time before that. But the only real show I could think of as a comparison is something like Phil Silver's. Like he became a name TV show yes. in the UK, but other shows that were happening at the time, like Jack Benny and all the rest, they weren't landing at all over in uh, over in the UK. No, I don't think so. I mean, I certainly I know of them just because of a sort of cultural significance in the states. You know, shows like The Honeymooners and things like that. They 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 sort of bleed through a little bit. But yeah. um, the other thing you have to remember is uh, this is this is a time, I suppose, when. There is one big show for this, one big show for that. There's a yeah. talk show, there's a variety show. There's a limited number of these shows going out. And it's not like now where you have a trillion television channels and, you know, we could have a TV show if we want. <laughs> we could. We could go on Twitch and do this. Um, yeah. And actually, I'm just thinking off the top of my head, the, the, as a kid, the thing, the first time anything Ed Sullivan hit my consciousness was that Billy Joel video. Remember that one? Um, no, no. He did it. <laughs> the, the video. Why, he, why would I remember? Why? What, why what have we already veered off into already. the world of Billy Joel? He did, a, he did a 1983 video for Tell Her About It and the it's it's a fake Ed Sullivan show appearance with an Ed Sullivan impersonator. And I think as a kid, of course, I, of course it is. As a kid, I didn't really understand what the reference was, but uh, that, that's uh, it. But, but it's that kind of cultural landscape that Ed Sullivan managed to imprint himself on, I think, because of the, the Beatles appearance. Um, so let's let's cover all bases here. Let's go all the way back. Who was Ed Sullivan, Stephen? Who was Ed Sullivan? Uh, I, I could read this in the style of Ed Sullivan, which well, don't because be, we want to be kind of comforting and entertaining. Yeah, I, I, you know, he's zero personality, very stilted delivery. What what people say about us, me, you know? Um, yeah, he he's he's uh, uh, this variety program, the Ed Sullivan Show, which was originally called the Toast of the Town. Nice. Uh, That's a great name. Uh, so it ran for twenty three years, from nineteen forty eight to nineteen seventy one, and is the longest running variety show in U.S. broadcast history. And we've never heard of it, um, except <laughs> in the context of of, of the Beatles. Um, uh, so he he now has a theatre named after him. Uh, yes. So the original uh, location or the second location, Studio 50 uh, Broadway, um, is now the Ed Sullivan Theatre. And do you want to tell I, us about I, you, You've I, been to the Ed Sullivan. I've been to the Ed Sullivan Theatre. I went to, um, over the years, I went to three separate uh, David Letterman recordings. So I think the second thing that Ed Sullivan is in our consciousness these days is because he does have the Ed Sullivan Theatre, which is a very striking building on... Uh, uh, on Broadway near Seventh Avenue in the U.S., and it's a it's 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 a curious building because it it, it opened in 1927 originally as a kind of a, a Hammerstein theatre, which went bankrupt. Although the first one of the first people to tread the boards was Cary Grant, which is a interesting fact. Um, and then it became a music hall theatre. But then in, in the mid 30s, CBS took over a lease, um, the CBS Broadcasting Company of the States, and it was a it was a radio theatre initially, um, similar to you know a few blocks over the NBC 
theatres or studios in Rockefeller Centre were originally radio yeah. studios. Um, and it isn't until about 1950 when it gets fitted out for television. And even then, it's not Ed Sullivan's exclusive theatre. It's Jackie Gleason who's using it uh, before Ed Sullivan uh, moves across. He's, he's at another CBS facility for the first few years of the Toast of the Town. Um, and the theatre only gets renamed the Ed Sullivan Theatre uh, at the end of December 67, which is to celebrate his 20th season on the air um, and the Beatles actually send him a telegram to celebrate that. Um, but it was a, it was just kind of a multifunctional kind of theater space. There was all sorts of TV shows like the Andy Griffin show and game shows and everything being recorded there in the sixties. Um, but it is a, it is a curious uh, building. Uh, it's like many things that you see on television. It's kind of smaller than you think. And uh, you know, the, the building is now, you know, used for uh, the late show with uh, Stephen Colbert and, um, but yeah, it is, it is quite, quite small. And there's only a couple of hundred people who are in the room for the Beatles performance at the time. And did, did you feel the history? Did you feel the, the hand of history on your shoulder there when you were there? Or is, it, is there no sense of... It, once you're in it and you've seen it, there are certain kind of, uh, there are certain kind of traits to the building. There are some arches up in the balcony and things. And then when you see them, they are familiar. Uh, and, and re-watching the shows, the, the Ed Sullivan shows for this... Um, you know, there are certain cutaways where they're in the audience and they're in the crowd and you can definitely see, oh yeah, that's the exact same building that Letterman and Colbert have been yeah. using for the last almost 30 years. So, uh, so it is nice to, to, to be there. Um, but so it, so what, what, what we're saying is the building has more personality than Ed Sullivan. That's, that's, uh, quite, <laughs> that's quite true, you know. And uh, he's certainly, you know, he's, um, yeah, he's a bit of a building of a human, you know, <laughs> quite I mean, functional. The, the, yeah, this is one of the things that, the, you know, you were saying we were watching the shows. I mean, I, I actually watched the entire show yeah. that, that the Beatles were on each time they appeared. And uh, they, those shows are really quite something. I mean, I, I, I don't think even... It must be a peculiarly American thing. I've seen early '60s variety shows from you know the UK from the BBC, and it's, yeah. they're 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 a completely different uh, thing. You know, in the UK, everything is kind of hinged on the on on the personality of the presenter. Um, well, the, the, but, there's the, there are two similar things that uh, you know, like the the big UK show at the time was Sunday Night at the Palladium, yeah, and yeah. that's actually I know we've talked before about Talking Pictures TV, the TV station over here, but they're repeating those shows on a Sunday night at the minute. And, you know, the TV variety shows uh, in the UK and the US were essentially uh, rollovers from the music hall uh, the stage, yeah. In, yeah. In, in, in the States and, you know, kind of the end of the pier kind of vaudeville stuff in the UK. They're kind of manifestations of those on stage versions. I think what's striking about the American ones that would have been unusual to audiences at the time in the UK was the amount of advertising and inserts and yeah. commercial references, which wasn't really a, a thing. Um, but in fairness to... Uh, Sullivan, you know, he, for all his kind of stiltedness and odd delivery, uh, you know, people did love him and he did have a knack for getting people onto his show and for spotting things and for, 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 you know, identifying what would work. I think, I think that's right. He's, he's a, he's a presenter rather than a performer, mm. you know, so he's not, he's not really telling jokes. He's not, he's not got a stage pattern. He's a presenter, uh, almost like a sort of impresario behind the scenes is really where he might have been in in, uh, in the old days. But he certainly had a talent uh, and had a reputation for, for spotting and promoting talent and also um, uh, sort of quite almost unique for the time is this idea he was a great champion of uh, black artists mm. that he had on the show at the time. Uh, and he made a great point of saying, you know, I never ask anyone about 
religion, race, politics. It's about talent, and uh, that's that's uh, you know how you get on my show is talent and nothing else. And uh, so, so it's obviously the big show. If anyone's wanting to break uh, through in, into the states at the time, that's the show to be on. And you know, the shows that the Beatles appear on, you do have a smattering of other UK performers. You know, we see Morecambe and Wise and people like that. So this this is the gateway. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, he would pay for people to come on the show, which, you know, you, you kind of look at the TV landscape nowadays and, you know, TV appearances are generally seen as, uh, you know, the, it's the publicity. So it's a, it's a yeah. symbiotic relationship. Like, you know, nobody's, no big movie star or music star is being paid to go on, you know, Jimmy Fallon or Jimmy Kimmel or any of those shows. They realize that it's part of the game that they plug in. But, you know, even when the, when the Beatles were involved, you know, he, he would pay thousands of dollars to secure yeah. people onto the show. So he was, uh, you know, it's definitely not like that now. So we can, we can get Matt Damon or... <laughs> on the show we can well, just give him a ring i might we, we might have to ask uh kevin godley for those thousands of euros back i didn't realize that was part <laughs> oh, of the deal yeah it was um <laughs> we, we we made a mistake there we a terrible a terrible there. mistake um so ed sullivan you know he, he he works his way up he has this show from the late 40s he puts his mark on it and you know he's definitely a very distinctive presenter type figure so how how does it come to pass? Because when we look at the timeline, you know, the, the Beatles are on the, uh, the Ed Sullivan show in February 64. And we talk about tearing apart the legend. Uh, I think one legend that, you know, we should probably flag up now is this notion that they, the Beatles themselves said, which was, we're not going to America until we're at number one, which is total hokum. Yes, yes. Uh, and it's hokum that's being repeated, I think, by George in Anthology. Yeah, yeah. You know, and whether whether he genuinely believes that or this is this is a rewriting of history, you sometimes get the sense that uh, you know the Beatles, the individual Beatles themselves, don't know, and they they sort of buy into the the myth. Yeah, um, but certainly that that was not. I think Paul is clear in anthology that that isn't the case. Um, George is, is is sort of clear. No, no, we had to have a number one. That's that's what we were going to do. Yeah. So just as a, as a, as a reminder, obviously, 63 is the year when they break through in, in, in England and Britain and in certain pockets of the world where Beatlemania takes hold. They cannot get a, a single out on the Capitol label in the US. And, um, you know, it comes to pass that, you know, the, the eventually I want to hold your hand hits and gets to number one in January when the Beatles are in uh, Paris and they find out they've number one and then they go to the States. But the, the groundwork for them getting to the States is happening months in advance. It's- it's all happening. There's a sort of a five month period. There's a five month build up to this. So it's it's inconceivable to think that, you know, the single hits number one in January and then three or four weeks later, they're flying to the States. Yeah. Uh, you know, that that's it's just not possible. Yeah, that so Ed this, Sullivan has cleared the decks for the Beatles. That's not it, what happens. That's that's not what happens. So um, it depends. You, you, you can take there are a couple of different versions of this. So that so. Well, first of all, Brian Epstein, you have to hand it to Brian Epstein. Yeah. And you kind of look at what, what, what's, what, what we're about to unfold here. He's a great manager. He really is fighting for this band and being making some really smart decisions. I think, I think that is what comes out. You know, there's a lot of criticism in terms of his financial dealings, but in terms of the, the, the if you like, the kind of old-fashioned hustling for your client, uh, yeah. he's, he's doing everything right here. Um, and this, this goes back to sort of November, 
1963, arguably a little bit earlier. The, the, the story is supposedly that on 31st of October, the Beatles are flying back into London from their Swedish jaunt. And supposedly Ed Sullivan is passing through the airport at the same time. He sees the the sort of the crowds, the Beatlemania going on, and this sort of piques his interest. Now, that 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 is the stuff of legend. Mm. But I I have not been able to find any confirmation that that actually happened. Yeah. Um. That 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 they that he was there at that particular moment and and experienced that. Um. That seems to be the accepted truth. But I. I can't see any mention of him even yeah. talking about that. Um, what we do know is that the first meeting that was set up uh, between himself and Epstein took place in New York, and that took place on the 11th of November. And this was as part of a, a trip that Epstein was specifically making to New York. He and uh, Billy J. Kramer uh, were, were flying to New York. And the main point of that seems to have been Epstein was also Billy J. Kramer's manager and he was trying to get him uh, hooked up. He felt he was going to be a sort of a cabaret style artist. You know, he was going to be doing theater shows or Las Vegas, that type of performer. Um, and that was the main purpose of that jaunt to New York. So when we talk about Ed Sullivan and Brian Epstein, though, there are a couple of other people who plug into that story who are kind of important to flag at this point when we're kind of in October, November 63. Yes. So regardless of whether or not uh, Ed and the Beatles cross paths at, at, at the airport, we do know that uh, there are a couple of key figures here. Uh, there's a guy called Jack Babb. He was the talent coordinator for Ed Sullivan, and he was regularly visiting Europe looking for talent. So that's another characteristic of, of the Ed Sullivan show is that he did feature European Mm. Uh, talent, European yes. acts. And they were kind um, of, there were all sorts. There were kind of magicians and puppeteers and all sorts yeah, of acts. Yeah, They're, just weird. It was, it was a very, very strange, very strange yeah. uh, mix. And in London, he was assisted by a chap called Peter Pritchard. And he's was, the link uh, to Epstein, isn't he? He was a theatrical agent and he knew Epstein um, yeah. personally. Now, again, I haven't been able to find a date for this, but supposedly at least once in the summer of 1963, um, Peter Pritchard took Jack Babb to see a Beatles concert. I, I would be really interested to know where that was, uh, you know, uh, what the set list was, you know, what exactly he was listening to at the time, because neither of them at that stage seemed to have been considering the Beatles for the uh, Ed Sullivan show. But at the same time, you know, there, there wasn't uh, there wasn't a huge list of British groups who went over to America and became as big as an American group. You know, I know no. the, um, you know, uh, the Telstars or Telstar had gotten to number one as the first British yeah. group uh, by Joe Meek's uh, Tornadoes. Um, but yeah, Acker, there wasn't. Acker Bilk. Acker Bilk. Yes. Another strange, Ed strange, Sullivan the, uh, staple. Uh, <laughs> well, we always say stranger on the floor. That was, uh, <laughs> that was his big hit. That was his big hit. But, but I guess you could understand if these guys, if Peter Pritchard is bringing Jack Babb to see the Beatles, there isn't a context to, oh, this is the next big British band that are going to break through in no. the States. You know, so no. it, it's, it, I guess in some ways he's probably, you know, it's, it's an experience that just goes into Babb's Rolodex, so to speak, yeah. that it, it, it I, might land later. Yes, I mean, there's no sense that as early as the summer of 63 that, that this is on the cards. But um, Pritchard knows that Epstein is going to uh, New York. And uh, say so the main thing is, is, is pitching 
uh, Billy J. Kramer, but also Epstein, I, I think, is wanting to find out why America is not falling for the beat. You know, what is going on here? Why will Capital not release the singles? And, and Pritchard actually suggests to him at this stage, you should try and uh, uh, do a deal to get the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show. And he offers to sort of be the intermediary. But Epstein, and again, this is, again, I think the confidence that he has in himself, he says, no, if we're going to do this, I'd like to do the negotiation. So rather than use an intermediary, he is going to pitch uh, the, the, the band to Ed Sullivan himself. And Pritchard says, well, that's fine. I'll set up a, uh, a meeting with you and Ed Sullivan. And again, I think that's clever because Epstein is passionate about the band and you think a face-to-face meeting with Sullivan is where he's going to be able to get that across. Well, I think Epstein wants to be in the room, you know, so it's going to be very easy if he's not in the room for the band to be ignored or to be bumped yeah. down the list or to not really understand, uh, to stand what, uh, what's going on. Um, so, yeah, so Pritchard pushes um, Brian Epstein towards Ed Sullivan and uh, it's, Ed Sullivan knows about the Royal Variety Show performance, doesn't he? Yes. Pritchard has given Sullivan a report. Uh, that show took place on the 4th of November, 1963. And uh, Pritchard off the back of that. And I suppose that makes sense because what you're seeing there is the Beatles dropped into that traditional showbiz variety performance uh, yeah. style event. So Pritchard gives a report on that uh, to Sullivan, recommends them and sets up an appointment, which according to uh, Epstein's appointment book is on the 11th of November in New York. And, and that, that initial meeting is just Epstein and Sullivan. And it is worth pointing out, obviously, the Royal Variety Show, the famous Rattle Your Jewellery performance yeah. is not only huge in terms of uh, eyeballs watching television sets, but it's also huge in terms of the amount of newsprint and media coverage that gets set off in the days after that. So undoubtedly, Pritchard is you know, probably talking about the performance, but he's also talking about the the media impact and the after effect, the phenomenon. Yes, yes, the reaction. This is really the this is really, I suppose, where where the Beatles uh, are on everybody's uh, uh, radar. Um, you yeah. know, every morning paper. You know, in those days, people are reading their paper over breakfast, and and the headlines are the Beatles. You know, yeah. as well as it appearing on TV. So, assuming he's getting this report from Pritchard, and you know this passage through Heathrow Airport happened on October the 31st. Um, Ed Sullivan obviously has a, has an idea of what's happening, although apparently he can never remember names and things. That's that's the the legend. Um, But you know, he, as you said, the, the, there's a a meeting that we know happened between um, Ed Sullivan and Brian Epstein on uh, Monday, the 11th of uh, November, 1963. And that's just the two of them meeting in a, in a New York hotel. Uh, that that seems to be just the two of them, and it comes together very quickly. They 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 just agree that the Beatles are going to appear on uh, his show on the 9th of February, um, and also then uh, the following week on a, a special show that's going to be broadcast uh, from Miami. And it, it just seems to have happened as quickly as that. Yeah. Um, there's there's a follow up. Uh, meeting the next day uh, where they meet for dinner. Uh, they've got uh, Sullivan's producer who's actually his son-in-law Bob Pract is there and the deal is sort of finalized and according to Pract when he was introduced to Epstein Sullivan said uh, this is the guy that has a great pop group and are going to be really big so by that stage Sullivan is is talking up the band and uh, it's it's all full steam ahead 
Yeah, and obviously we don't know exactly what kind of magic uh, stories that uh, Brian was spinning on behalf of the group because there's a couple of other things that are happening in parallel. One of the reasons he's in New York is also to go talk to Capitol Records and to try and see why there isn't a, a single coming out. So whether he's whether he knows the details of I want to hold your hand when he's talking to uh, Ed Sullivan or not, we don't really know. I think he's probably playing one against the other. I I, I think there's an element of that. You, yeah. you know, um, Capital, Dave, the famous Dave Dexter is still knocking back uh, the, the, the singles and saying, no, we don't want them. They're not going to play well in the American market. The other thing that's going on is that um, United Artists are in the background and they're setting up the film. Now, that this will is, a this is really curious because, yeah, the, again, trying to tear down the legend. The legend is that the Beatles couldn't get arrested in the USA in 1963. Yeah. You know, and, it, you know, it's only like it's like somebody pressed a button on January the 1st, 64 to let them in. But, you know, there's there's obviously some people paying attention. And if you go back and look at you know, trade papers from the time, you know, billboard trade papers from late 63. There's a couple of stories, particularly if you're tracking, they used to have the international charts at the back. If you're tracking those things, you can see that this band, the Beatles are in number one everywhere, you know? So, you know, if if you were worth your salt in in the US music business or entertainment business, you should at least, as the second half of 63 rolled out, had an idea of who they were. So, you know, there are people in the US who do see a way of making money and thinking that this band is the future. And as you say, United Artists, the Hard Day's Night deal is coming together. That's around October 63 yeah, as well. Yes, this, this, this goes right back to October 63. So as you say, United Artists are, are clearly more attuned to what's happening than Capital are. You know, United Artists see this band, uh, they're, they're big in the UK, they're charting in, in, in other countries in Europe, and they think... We can make some money here. We can make a film. They're not really, I think, so much interested in making money off the back of the film. What they're interested in is the soundtrack album. Yeah. And this is this is just going to be a quick, cheaply shot sort of exploitation movie. Get the film out, but get the soundtrack out. And they see they can make money off the soundtrack. So Epstein has already got this deal um, simmering away in the background. And you've got to think that that comes into the mix whenever he's uh, pitching this to Sullivan. You know, my boys are this time next year. They're going to be movie <laughs> stars. We've got a deal in, in, in place with United Artists. So it, 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 everything that you, you sort of uncover about this and the lead up to Sullivan makes it even more inexplicable that Capital are not doing anything yeah. uh, uh, with, with, the, with the actual sort of record side of it. Yeah, it is interesting, as you say, that United Artists wanted an album more so than a movie and they were willing to, you know, throw money at a cheap movie, which would, you know, cheap enough to recoup its costs in the UK uh, yeah. in order to get, uh, you know, to think that this this band could potentially be big in uh, in, in the States. And um, so that is happening. So, you know, Brian sees it on the horizon that this big future soundtrack album is going to be coming out in the States uh, no matter what. So even if Capital were still playing hard to get at that point, Brian can say, well, look, you know, we could launch launch on Ed Sullivan, we can get the movie out two or three months later and get a single out from United Artists and, and do it that way. You know, so that's that's another yeah. possible route he has to, to getting US success. So as you said, there's a deal done quite quickly. And uh, Bob Precht, uh, the 
producer and son-in-law who gets kind of name-checked on Sullivan's show from time to time, uh, I've noticed as a kind of a jokey aside. Um, they do this deal. And again, as I said earlier, it's odd that they used to pay to get people onto these performances. And the Beatles do get paid a decent salary for their performance. And the, the deal is it's not just one performance. No. So Sullivan, Sullivan, you know, does pay, traditionally pays good money. I mean, I think he pays top dollar that he has that reputation. So there's 10,000 pounds for a single performance is, is, is not unheard of here. He offers Brian three and a half thousand for each of two shows and also agrees to pay their kind of travel and, and hotel bills and thing. I would like to know what the hotel bill turns out uh, to, to <laughs> it's a nice hotel, be. the plaza. It's a nice hotel. Um, but supposedly it's Brian that says, well, look, let, let's split 10,000 across uh, three shows. Um, but that's on the basis that they get top billing. Um, it's Prack that suggests, well, look, there's two live programs. Let's do a third filmed insert. That's three and a half for the live shows, 3,000 for the filmed in, insert. And there you have a, you have a deal. Uh, Epstein is very clear that um, uh, Sullivan agrees straight away that they can have top billing. I think, again, that's a little bit of finessing yeah. uh, the, the legend. The legend. Um, I don't think that is 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 actually the case. You know, if you look at some of the sh- the, the shows, particularly the Miami show, um, other people are are higher up the bill. Um, I know you want to talk at some length about uh, Mitzi Gaynor, <laughs> Mitzi who's Gaynor. Your, your childhood. Uh, <laughs> um, well, I, I, just a side point on Mitzi Gaynor, who, who you know, and we'll talk about the shows one by one in a sec. But she she is. Um, She's still uh, entertaining. She's still on the go. She headlines the second Beatles at Sullivan show. She's 89 years of age. And a few weeks ago, I just saw her, you know, on Twitter. She's on Twitter getting her COVID jab. So, you know, it's nice that can we, things can go we on. Get, can we get her on the show? Uh, I'm sure we could. Yes. Do we have, do we do have, we have 10 pay, grand? <laughs> do we have 10 grand to get her on the show? Well, it's 10, spent- t- 10 grand is almost 80 grand in you know, uh, money these money. days, which yeah. is, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's interesting that that's it, the, the amount of money that was being generated by the show that they could afford to pay that. Well, yeah. And I mean, the, the, they have dozens of acts coming on to the, the, the show, all of whom they'd paid. Um, but I, I suspect, strongly suspect that, uh, you know, even if Sullivan is kind of going, yes, yes, that's fine. You're going to have top billing. This is not set in stone and this doesn't happen until much, much closer to showtime. Yeah. Um, and, and again, these deals are in typical Epstein fashion, initially just being done on the basis of a handshake. And that is kind of, uh, you know, uh, Brian is a pretty honorable, honorable guy in that regard. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So, again, the legend is somewhere in between. Does he demand there at the headliners or is it just obvious by the time that February 1964 rolls around? These guys have to be the headliners because they're just yeah. the headlining stars around the world. And so the deal is made. And that is the first time that the Beatles are seen on US TV. The end. The end. <laughs> well, well, it, it is it is sometimes assumed that Sullivan is their first uh, TV appearance, but it was their live debut. I think we yes. can say that. Um, but they'd been on TV lots of times uh, before they they actually appeared on on Ed Sullivan. Do you want to do you want to take a trot through uh, their previous yes. appearances? Well, you know, their first uh, sighting on US TV. I think we should talk about that first. Okay. But maybe we should talk about it after this break. 
End of part one. Intermission. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. End of intermission. Part two. Uh, welcome back. Yeah, the, 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 the Beatle trivia buffs often say that the first time they're seen is the Huntley Brinkley report in November, but actually they're seen on US TV for the first time when? They are. This is uh, back to September of 1963. Yep. Um, so they're, they're virtually unknown, um, but they are seen on Dick Clark's American Bandstand. Um, so Dick Clark ha- has a, a, a rate a record segment on his show and... Um, he played five different records. Uh, there's lots of you know hip teenagers judging, saying whether they're good or bad. And um, one of the records that that is played is "She Loves You," mm. and this is, a, this is this is the Swan uh, single that has come out. He plays it. It scores seventy three out of a possible one hundred. Came in third third place, uh, and then Dick Clark holds up a photograph of the Beatles to the camera um, <laughs> with their kind of makes a, you know, a little bit of a joke about the mop top haircut and everybody laughs and, and kind of makes fun of them. So if, if someone asks you, you know, your pub quiz question, when were the first, when, when was the first time they were seen? A photograph was held up on, on uh, by Dick Clark in September of 1963. That is, yeah. And it's, does history recall which record won Rater Records that week? Do we know? Oh, no. I should have. I should have that's, looked that's that up. That's the pub quiz question. That's the pub quiz question. <laughs> um, yeah, but it's like that's back in, as you say, September '63. So there are small, tiny, little seeds of yeah. Beetledom being planted in in the US um, early on. What the books often say is that the first time they're kind of reported on or seen in in live film footage is in uh, November, November eighteenth, nineteen sixty on NBC's The Huntley Brinkley Report. And we have the audio of this recorded. We don't actually have the true video, but you can listen to the audio of this report. It's a four minute long segment and it's on YouTube. But it's it's kind of a report that is reporting on the craze more so than them. Yes, it's not so much about the band or the music. It's about the sort of phenomenon of uh, screaming teenagers. Yeah. Um, But, you know, it's also reported later on that same week, uh, again, on a news show, CBS uh, News have a CBS Morning News have a five minute segment on the Beatles as well. Yeah, Um, this is CBS Morning News, November the 22nd, 1963. Um, Again, it's about 
the, the popularity aspect. It's about this sort of cultural phenomenon that is due to be re-aired uh, that the, the evening of the 22nd. But of course, that's the day of the JFK, JFK. assassination. Mm. So everything comes to comes to a halt. Um, that segment is eventually re-aired uh, on the 10th of December, 63, uh, by Walter Cronkite. And um, supposedly after that airs, Sullivan rings Cronkite and says, uh, you know, what do you know about this band? And this is what you're saying earlier. He says, about those bugs <laughs> or whatever they call themselves. So again, it's typical apparently that he, um, you know, doesn't, doesn't remember names. So uh, apocryphally, perhaps, he, he's ringing Cronkite in December saying, tell me what you know. Well, in, 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 an, in an era these days of, you know, media cross-platform synergy, you know, this is kind of quite quaint. You know, it's worth pointing yes. out, just reminding again that, you know, Ed Sullivan is a CBS TV uh, broadcaster. So his show goes out on the CBS network. And at the time, Walter Cronkite was the main evening anchor of the CBS Evening News, which, you know, went coast to coast. He's one of these most trusted voices in America um, uh, type individuals. So, you know, what, what you can kind of see happening almost between the segment first coming out on November the 22nd and getting repeated on December the 10th is there's maybe a, a slight reawakening that not only are this band kind of tipping forwards in popularity, but CBS needs to kind of, uh, you know, up the ante in terms of realizing that they actually have signed this band up for a big TV show. Yes, there, there seems to be a sort of a dawning realization, particularly in the part of Sullivan. And again, you, you, you don't know how much of this is, is, you know, everyone who tries to reposition themselves at the center of the story or, yeah. or big up their role after the, it becomes clear how big the story actually is. So um, supposedly after the Huntley Brinkley report, Sullivan says, this is the point at which I made up my mind that 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 this is the same sort of mass hysteria as uh, Elvis Presley. So he's saying, you know, I I knew I met with Epstein early November. I knew by the 18th when I saw the Huntley Brinkley report, this was going to be huge. This was going to be Elvis style uh, hysteria. So again, whether that's true or not, other aspects of the story will indicate that perhaps. You know, Sullivan was still not 100% on board until much, much closer um, to showtime. So the Beatles, as we say, have been on a couple of different things. They've been on the CBS News and Ed Sullivan is kind of recognizing this. And, you know, on December the 13th, CBS issue a, a press release. Um, they announced that the Beatles, wildly popular quartet of English recording stars, will make their first trip to the United States February the 7th for their American television debut on the Ed Sullivan show Sunday, February the 9th and 16th. So December 13th, they see which way the wind is blowing. They're yeah. starting to you know, it's publicity for the Beatles, but they also realize it's publicity for their own show. So it's worth reminding, I know we did a show in season one about I Want to Hold Your Hand, but it's worth reminding ourselves what's happening at this time with I Want to Hold Your Hand, because Brian's trips to America have secured a capital release for the single and a promotional budget. Yes. I mean, it, 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 we sort of touched on this a little bit uh, earlier, but it's it's this idea that capital just still are not buying in. You know, United Artists have bought in, CBS, Ed Sullivan have bought in, but capital are still not buying in. So, and it's worth reminding ourselves that capital are owned by the UK parent company EMI. Yes, and even yes. EMI cannot tell them to release the single, which seems crazy. It is. It, it's absolutely crazy. And again, it's fascinating, and probably a whole episode in itself about how that 
comes about and how that turns around. But essentially, just by way of a little bit of background, this this all seems to be down to Dave Dexter, who yeah. has been tasked by um, the Capitol President Alan Livingstone to sort of review these these uh, pictures that are coming in from from EMI. So the first two singles have been released by other labels. So Capital have turned this down. Uh, VJ in February 63 released Please Please Me. She Loves You, uh, which is the Dick Clark single, um, is September 63. But then by the beginning of December, first week in December, the US press are picking up on this Beatlemania phenomenon in, in the UK. And that actually prompts Alan Livingstone, who's the president of Capital, to actually get involved himself. He listens to I Want to Hold Your Hand, and he thinks there's something here. He has a conversation with Epstein, a call with Epstein, and confirms that Capital are going to put the song out as a single. And again, we, we talk about Epstein's management here. He says, fine, but I want a $40,000 promotional budget. Mm. And Weirdly, Livingston says yes. I mean, that's a phenomenal amount of money. Yeah, it's um, about 350 grandish. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so he is clearly bought into this. Uh, he's, he talks about, you know, oh, I heard the song. And once I heard the song, but there's got to be an element of these things are feeding themselves. So it's the TV show, it's the United Artists deal. All of this is ramping up the pressure because he also recounts the fact that he went home talked to his wife and said, oh, this is what I've done. Play, played her the song and she hated it. And, <laughs> and, and he suddenly thought, what have I, what have I done? Yeah. Um, but he then goes on to make clear that they didn't have to spend the 40,000. They spent a fraction of the $40,000 uh, yeah. promotional budget because the thing started promoting itself uh, once the Sullivan show took off. But the single was then officially scheduled to be released on the 13th of January, which is going to sort of coincide with the run-up to the Sullivan shows. Yeah. And again, we maybe talk about this on another episode, but it's interesting that by the time that date rolls around, uh, VJ are putting it, re-releasing uh, Please Please Me. Uh, Capital have got their lawyers all over it. They're trying to take uh, uh, VJ out of the picture for unpaid royalties. Um, and you know, it's the first, the first big lawsuits of the Beatles' career are, are developing <laughs> at this stage. That's a whole um, podcast series in itself. Beatles it's a series lawsuits. in itself. But it, but it does seem to be that it's that first week, first two weeks in December that all of this starts suddenly uh, snowballing. Yes. And, and yeah, there's lots of different things happening and they're just all, you know, snowballing into an avalanche is kind of what they're yeah. doing. Yeah. And the single is originally, as you say, pitched for mid-January. The 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 desire for people to get it in their hands it gets pulled back to uh december the 26th and you know the the, the legend of marcia albert is one of those people who who helps drive that yes i mean we all sort of know about ed sullivan and murray the k but um, you know arguably one of the single most important people in the sort of breaking of the beatles in america is is this girl marcia albert um so we do we do forty five minutes on Marsha Albert. <laughs> well, I think she gets a nod in our "I Want to Hold Your Hand" episode, but it's still yeah. a great story that she's fifteen years old in where Maryland, Silver Spring, yeah, yeah, and she just loves the Beatles so much she gets or she gets a hand on the single, isn't that it? Yeah, that's it. So what what happens is she sees the CBS News report again. It's all back to that that report. She writes a letter to her local station WWDC saying, "Why can't we have this music in America?" 
the DJ, Carol James, uh, who had also seen the TV segments, he has a friend who is a uh, uh, you know, air crew on BOAC. So he gets in touch and says, whatever you're coming back from London, can you bring me a copy of this, this song, I Want to Hold Your Hand? So he actually gets you know, possibly the first, uh, the first ever copy of the single to, to appear in America. Um, 17th of December, so this is one week after the Walter Cronkite segment on the yeah. tent, he brings Marsha Albert down to the station to introduce the song. So she gets to introduce the song on American radio for the first time. And according to him, the switchboard lights up and the whole place goes nuts. And people are saying, what is this? Where can I get it? Um, and he adds it to his playlist, his regular playlist. And then, yeah, in that week before Christmas, the song just goes into rotation on radio stations in Washington, Chicago, St. Louis, Capital, bring back the single released December 26th. There's, you know, they, they've got 200,000 copies planned and they realize that's that's not enough. And, you know, the, the thing we need to remind ourselves is uh, that, you know, this song happens very, very quickly. It's a three week spurt to from December 26th, for this song becomes the fastest selling, biggest selling single in capital history. It sells a million, goes to number one by mid-January 1964. Yeah, and so, this is primarily because Marsha Albert gets in touch with the DJ and says, you know, and what happens was he he makes tapes of it and gives it to other people. And it's, at one point, Capital are, are issuing cease and desist letters to him to stop this being played. Which is quaint. <laughs> it's very quaint. But then they sort of realise this is this is just, this is taken on a life of its own. Yes. Um, so, you know, by, you know, in, in that kind of window of time, you know, between Walter Cronkite and the song getting to number one, obviously the Ed Sullivan show is, you know, it's it's planned, it's written, it's it's in the it's in the stars. You know, if anything, maybe Ed Sullivan would probably have wanted to get them on a few weeks earlier if that was possible, because yeah. everything is happening a few weeks earlier. Um, but, you know, you have that January 1964 period where, you know, the Beatles are not in the US, but they are the biggest selling act in the US. They are the number one uh group on the charts. And so, so, you know, they're generating news stories. As I've said before, you go back and you look at those billboard magazines from December 63 to January 64. And basically the Beatles just start taking over that magazine. They are breaking all sorts of records. Uh, And so people are hungry to get them onto the TV. They don't really want to wait until February the 9th and the Ed Sullivan show. And, you know, there's, there's one TV show in January that causes a bit of trouble by putting the, the Beatles on air in the U.S., Yes, this is the Jack Parr program. Yes. Um, so you're 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 a Jack Parr fan. Well, I'm not a Jack Parr fan, but <laughs> he's 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 a very curious guy. So obviously, the the you know the Tonight Show is the the big uh, named brand in, in in U.S. late night television. You know, for 30 years it was Johnny Carson's show. Uh, it's currently Jimmy Fallon's show. But prior to Johnny Carson taking over in 1962 for 30 years, the host was this guy, Jack Parr, who was kind of a <clears throat> mercurial, uh, some would say emotional type. You know, he once stormed off The Tonight Show for three months because uh, the censors took a joke off air about a water closet at WC and he thought this was oh, network censorship and he couldn't handle it. So he he kind of had that, uh, you know, people like, oh, what's Jack Parr going to do next? As opposed to Johnny Carson's kind of laid back, you know, you yeah. could just have him on in the background type vibe. So, so Jack Parr had hosted The Tonight Show, I think for about, you know, for the guts of five years, but had decided that, you know, The Tonight Show back in that day was five nights a week and it was one hour 45 uh, in length per night. So you were doing five... Um, uh, one hour uh, and 45 minute shows per night, which he felt was burnout. So 
NBC didn't want to lose him and they gave him a weekly show called the Jack Parr show and they turned over the Tonight Show to, to Johnny Carson, which worked out well. Um, so he had this show called the Jack Parr program and, you know, he, he would he would show things from around the world and would have kind of an internationalist kind of view. But one of the things he did was he got the rights uh, from the BBC for the Beatles at the Royal Variety performance. Yes. So this is the show that uh, back in 4th of November and... Um, the BBC gave him these, or sold him, uh, this footage, which is essentially uh, She Loves You, uh, that show, that that song, plus cutaways of the sort of screaming fans. And he, he seems to have approached it in a slightly uh, kind of humorous fashion, you know, a bit like Dick Clark holding up that photograph and getting people to laugh at their haircuts. So he... Um, he broadcasts this and he, he actually says uh, the, his introduction is, uh, I understand science is working on a cure for this. These guys have these crazy hairdos and when they wiggle their heads and the hair goes, the girls go out of their minds. Does it bother you to realize that in a few years, these girls will vote, raise children and even drive cars? You know, mm. so it's, it's, it's being presented in a kind of sarcastic uh, uh, fashion. But uh, Sullivan finds out about this, that this yeah. is going to happen. And, and of course, the big thing here is that Epstein has promised Sullivan the first and exclusive American television appearance of the Beatles. And now Jack Power is about to show a live uh, performance uh, recorded in, in, in November. Yes. And, you know, Epstein tries to stop it and they try and go through whatever. See, can the BBC rescind its licensing and take it back? But Parr yeah. realises he's the only guy on network television with a decent bit of footage to show of the Beatles on US TV in January 64. He's not giving it he's back. Not, he's, he's not going to budge. And I mean, Epstein at one point says, we're never appearing. We're not, we're, we're not going to do BBC radio ever again. We're going to cancel our, our BBC radio appearances. And the BBC, by all accounts, did did try very hard to stop this. Um Sullivan. I think it's I think it's understandable. I mean it's a it's a very unusual time. It's very fraught. They want to make the big bang. They don't want to ruin the Ed Sullivan show. Yes, it's 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 undermining that. And I mean I think that the moral here is you really he should have had lawyers uh, on, <laughs> on, on on board. You know, there's there's You're never right. a lawyers solve everything. Lawyer there's never a problem to which the correct answer is not we need more lawyers. More lawyers I mean I think is. we we but, um, but Sullivan is absolutely uh, you know incensed by this um and he tells uh, uh, pritchard cancel the beatles just yeah. cancel it uh pritchard very sensibly decides to wait a few days see if sullivan calms down doesn't get in touch doesn't cancel sullivan eventually kind of cools off and um i think again because he realizes just what a hot property he's got here and i suppose the other thing is is you're saying you know, it's a different audience. You know, the mm. Jack Parr show is a different audience to the Ed Sullivan show. And Parr is, is uh, he says himself, he's not presenting this clip as entertainment so much as a kind of, you know. Yeah, he later said, uh, I didn't know they were going to change the culture of the country with music. I thought they were funny. I brought them here as a, as a, as a joke. That's what Jack yeah. Parr says. Yeah, it's a kind of sociological phenomenon as far as he's concerned. It's not so entertainment. I, I think it's worthwhile then saying at that point that, you know, you have to doff your cap to Ed Sullivan, who took them seriously, or if not taking them seriously, he, he took showbiz seriously. He, he, you know, he was really what Ed Sullivan was doing on his show was, you know, sincerely saying, here are different entertainers from around the world doing their yep. thing. 
me and my team have made a decision that they are best in class in some way. And we're going to put them on our show for an hour and you can watch all these different acts. Ed Sullivan, you know, from, from the shows I've watched, he's never, uh, you know, we can joke that he's kind of stilted and he's kind of got this kind of pseudo Richard Nixon type vibe coming off him, you know, Um, but he's, 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 he's not mocking the acts. He realizes that the show is dependent on who he gets on the show. He kind of knows, I think that people aren't watching for him in a way. Yeah. And, you know, so he's taking showbiz and the Beatles seriously. He's not doing a Jack Parr on this at all. No, no, no. Uh, I, I think that's a fair comment. And as you say, for all that I'm, I'm kind of making fun of uh, Ed Sullivan's delivery, he, he is putting entertainment out there. And it's it's it's. Uh, it, it's a it is a wide variety of stuff that he puts on the, on on the show. Um, so in the in the in the grand scheme of things, you know, this snowballing into an avalanche is that you know Capitol Records have this biggest selling single of all time. It's at number one, and uh, you know the Beatles are on their way to to New York City, and Capitol realize that you know they have to fill in the gaps between you know, uh, what Ed Sullivan and his show are doing and what they can do as a, as a record label. Because, yeah. you know, one of the things you think that, you know, sometimes the legend is that, you know, the Ed Sullivan show caused US Beatlemania, but US Beatlemania was happening. Ed Sullivan just, you know, blew it wide open. And, you know, you kind of, you know, a very logical question is, you know, well, Ed Sullivan didn't put 4,000 fans at the airport in New York, Yes, I mean, I I remember sort of for a long time that was the big mystery to me was if if you know how did they get a number one in America before they'd actually been to America? How 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 was it that they got off the plane and there were four thousand fans at the airport? This seems to have just this, this is inexplicable. Mm. Um, but in 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 a you get the sense that. Because the record had taken off uh, and kind of grown organically in those last couple of weeks in December, arguably the the anticipation, the fact that the Beatles weren't available was building that anticipation and and that allowed Capital then to, you know, they published the itinerary. I mean, this is, again, a create, you can't imagine any any uh, record company doing this now saying, you know, our, our the group will be here at this particular time if you all want to go down and, and, and kind of scream and, <laughs> Have a and yell at them. <laughs> uh, so so uh, they actually published the itinerary. Um, yes. So they, they take off uh, on the 7th of February, um, uh, from Heathrow, Pan Am Flight 101, uh, with 4,000 people at the airport to see them off. They they land in New York, and there's 4,000 people, presumably different 4,000 people. Um, uh, in, wow, in I New never York. thought it might be the same 4,000 people. That would be all, wild. All on, on uh, you know, <laughs> private flights, jets. flights, private jets that got there slightly <laughs> early. Um, so, yeah, so 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 they, they, they uh, Capital, I think, managed this quite well they're they're clearly a little on the back foot in in initially and in that they have to bring forward uh the the record release um but i think it's the absence of the beatles in america for that yeah, sort of creates four a vacuum. Week period creates that build up of, of of anticipation yeah and so capital you know tell the new york radio stations to get everyone off to uh to to, to jfk to meet the beatles and you know, something we should probably talk about a sec is part of the legend is that, um, you know, the assassination of JFK led to another type of vacuum where people wanted. Yeah. Uh, and, you, and you look at this timeline and it is remarkably close to the assassination on the 22nd of November. You know, two weeks later, the 
you know, the, the Cronkite clip is shown on the evening news. Um, you know, the song is spreading like wildfire and the airport is renamed JFK in those few weeks as well. Yeah. You know, like, it, like when, when the, when, when they first were on CBS news, the airport wasn't known as JFK, you know, it's been a yeah. tumultuous yeah, yeah. collection of weeks. Um, it's, it's, it's kind of impossible to say whether, you know, what impact that event had, but it must've had some kind of impact. It, 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 it certainly cultural commentators at the time seem mm. to be pointing to this. Yeah. Um, and again, it's to do with the fact that, you know, Kennedy was a youthful president. He mm. was the future of the country. It was young people and, and all of that had been taken away. And there was a sort of a, 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 a depth of kind of national sorrow. Yeah. But particularly with younger people. Yeah. Um, who saw in some way their future having been taken away or their future having been compromised. Um, I, you know, the, that theory seems to wax and wane in popularity. You know, the, there was a period where people saying, oh, that really doesn't have anything to do with it. And that's you're, you're projecting something there. But but there were cultural commentators at the time were saying this is. Uh, th- th- this is exactly what, what's happening. It's, it's, it's people suddenly, something new, something young, something optimistic that, 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 that is replacing. You know, Johnson, Lyndon Johnson coming in as a, a, a president is a very different personality to Kennedy. Absolutely. And yeah, and it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a 10 week period from the, the, the awful events of November 22nd to the Beatles coming to New York. But as we've seen from recent history, a lot can change in 10 weeks, a lot of ten weeks and long time. It is a long time. So the Beatles land at JFK and, you know, there's famous footage uh, of the Males Brothers uh, film of the first US visit of the Beatles kind of in their car on the way to the Plaza Hotel. And we could talk about yeah. that film for a full episode some other time, but it's very, it's- they, they are... It, 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 it really is an extraordinary culmination because they're listening to themselves on the radio. They, you know, apart from George, they haven't been to the US before and they, yeah. uh, they are really enjoying themselves. It's nice. I, I, early Beatlemania is so much fun because there's none of the jadedness yet. It's all a novelty I, and fun and joyous. I think that's, I mean, that, that, that it, it's, that the clip of them in the back of the car listening to themselves on little transistor radios with Murray the K going completely nuts. Uh, you know, th- 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 again, it's a scene that the, the, is parodied so well in uh, the Ruddles uh, <laughs> yes. movie, but, but it's just this absolutely, as you say, this kind of innocent uh, excitement where they just, uh, it's hard to conceive of what that must be like where you suddenly arrive in a country for the first time and there's thousands of people there to greet you and your records are being played on the radio, you know? Yep. And every, uh, every, every radio, every, every station. radio station. And, and then they're, they're back in, in, in the hotel that evening watching Walter Cronkite talking about Beatlemania is here. Well, again, it's that CBS television synergy again, where Walter Cronkite is yeah reporting from the Plaza Hotel uh, suite. And uh, Cronkite states that the British invasion this time goes by the codename Beatlemania. D-Day has been common knowledge for months, and this was the day. And, you know, worth reminding ourselves, it's what, roughly about 20 years since the actual D-Day. These things are all fresh <laughs> in the memory. This, yeah. is not, uh, this is not ancient history just yet. Um, so they land on the 7th of February, 64, and they set foot in Studio 50, uh, which is now known as the Ed Sullivan Theatre on the 8th of February 64 for their first rehearsal. But 
we might press pause right there, folks, because we have covered a lot of ground and we haven't even gotten to talking about the shows themselves because there's a lot to tear apart in those shows as well. So this is going to go into part two of the Ed Sullivan shows, but hopefully we have laid out the, the path as to, to how they got here. It really, like when you, when you look at it, it really is an extraordinary sequence, isn't it? It is. It's, it's the speed uh, uh, at which it happens. And uh, there, there's, there's a sort of organic quality to it. You know, these days or, you know, any, at any point after this, this would be a meticulously planned uh, assault on, on the charts or the American media. And, uh, you know, there would be money thrown at it. But this seems to have been a genuinely organic uh, uh uh, sort of move towards towards the top of the charts. Yeah, they could only plan so much and they were lucky that the wind was blowing in a certain way on some parts of these events. Yeah. So it, it's it's just a it's just a great bit of history. But we shall go in depth into what happened next because lots happens next uh, on next week's episode of the pod. Uh, again, thanks for listening, folks. We always say that we're available at the usual places on Twitter at Beatles Pod and the Nothing Is Real Facebook group. But we also now have a range of options for you to uh, to get inspired by Nothing Is Real. We've nothingisrealpod.com, our website, which has got lots of information in terms of all our old Spotify playlists, all the ways to get in touch with us, all the ways you can uh, support and uh, uh, help us out here on the podcast as well. Nothingisrealpod.com. So check us out there. And uh, But for now, uh, my name's Jason Carty. My name's Stephen Cockcroft. And this has been Nothing Is Real. Thanks for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode, and if you did, why not become a member? You'll get access to ad-free content, bonus episodes, and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on ACAST Plus, or visit our website, nothingisrealpod.com.